I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. We're continuing our rewatch of The Leftovers today as we hit Episode 7 from Season 2, A Most Powerful Adversary. My name is Justin Hamilton, and I'm here to let you know I'm ready. The Big Squid. fantastic episode of The Leftovers, and you can feel the momentum really building now with only three episodes left in this season. What wonderful performances all around, but Justin Thoreau just keeps getting better and better. I love this series so much, and I cannot wait to talk about this episode. A quick reminder that if you're not a part of our private Facebook page, we've had a bunch of new and interesting people join our merry group over there, and there's some fascinating conversations going on. If you'd like to join, please do so. It is open to anyone who loves the arts and entertainment and would like to discuss whatever you're enjoying in a place that is free of recrimination or childish tantrums. I like to think of it as an oasis in the middle of the shit that is known as the internet. (laughs) I've also placed something there just for our group. I'll have to take it down at some point, but it's there for a little while in case you'd like a treat. I won't tell you what it is, but it is there and you can find it easily to download if it is something that floats your boat. Let's get into this episode of The Leftovers. It is one of my favourite episodes and is entitled, A Most Powerful Adversary. Grip. 
Kevin wakes and for a moment forgets he's handcuffed to the bed. He tries to roll over to talk to Nora, but she's not in the bed alongside him. Paddy tells Kevin that Nora snuck out with Lily and she has left him. She told Kevin not to tell Nora that he was seeing a dead woman because she'd leave him and that is exactly what Nora has done. Kevin doesn't believe Paddy but before he can continue the conversation Jill walks in wondering who her father is talking to. He tells Jill that Nora has left without a key and could she go down to the toolbox to help him get out. Jill wants to know what is going on. Where are Nora and Lily? Kevin just wants to be freed from the handcuffs but he can't think properly because Paddy is talking at him incessantly, babbling on about when her husband Neil finally left her and Kevin does whatever he can to block her out. Jill returns with a letter from Nora. Jill wants to know what her father did to make Nora leave. Kevin just wants the letter rather than answering the question. Jill refuses to hand it over and instead reads out the note. Nora tells Kevin that she's taken Lily and Mary, that they've gone away and he shouldn't call. Jill walks out on her father in disgust. Paddy tells Kevin, it is going to be a hard day. Kevin manages to remove himself from the bed, but the part of the handcuff around his wrist is still attached. He drives and calls Nora, but it goes to voicemail. He begs Nora to call him back while Paddy watches from the passenger seat. I hope she calls back, says Paddy, crossing her fingers. Jill visits Michael at the church and confesses to him that her father is losing his mind. She swears, and Michael asks her not to do that in this place. Jill is intense and swears over and over, pointing out that a lightning bolt hasn't taken her down. She continues her confession about her father, that he's losing his mind, just like his father, that he sleepwalks and has to be cuffed to the bed at night, that he talks to people who aren't there. Michael wonders if there really isn't anyone there, because maybe there is because he talks to someone that people can't see. Jill isn't having any of it. She asks if it is God or Jesus or the Holy Ghost that is talking to him, saying that they can fool around but can't have sex. Michael confesses he doesn't want to sleep with Jill because he doesn't know her well enough. He's not ready. He's not even certain if he loves her yet. For the second time that day, Jill walks off in disgust. Kevin drives to the locksmith who was with a young boy learning a new language. Kevin asks if the locksmith can remove the handcuff. He checks it and discovers it is a policeman's issue. Kevin points out that he's a cop, but the locksmith needs either ID or a look at his badge to prove he really is in the force. Paddy hasn't stopped talking at Kevin this whole time and he finally snaps and yells at her. But without anyone else being able to see her there, it looks like he's just yelled at the young boy for no reason. Not surprisingly, the locksmith asks Kevin to leave. In the car, Kevin resumes his argument with Paddy, begging her to stop talking, to just leave, or at least just tell him. What does she want from him? Paddy is relieved that he asked. She tells Kevin there is an ancient artefact in Cairo, Egypt, known as a wishing cup. She needs Kevin to break into the museum where it is kept, and she wants him to fill it full of his cum and drink it. Kevin is aghast. Paddy looks at him and laughs. She confesses she has no idea what he has to do. She killed herself and now she's saddled with him. Kevin begs her to leave, that she's destroying his life, but Paddy just won't stop talking until eventually she does and looks over his shoulder. Kevin turns around and Michael is looking in through the window, his bike helmet on straddling his bike. He's just caught Kevin talking to himself. He calmly places his bike in the back of Kevin's truck, gets into the passenger seat and talks to Kevin. 
He knows all about Paddy. He knows all of this from his grandfather. Kevin is confused. Michael thinks that Kevin should go and visit his grandfather and he'll point the way. When they arrive at Virgil's home, it turns out Kevin has been there before. Kevin doesn't remember, so Virgil invites him in, but alone. Paddy has to stay behind in the car. Inside, Virgil reminds Kevin about the first day they met. It was Kevin's first day in Jardin at the visitor's centre, and he told Kevin he could help him out because he could feel Paddy clinging to him. Kevin visited Virgil that night and told him all about Paddy. Virgil explains that Paddy isn't inside of Kevin, she's on top of him, and if he wants to get rid of her, Kevin is going to have to face her on her terms, in the other place. And the only way you can access the other place is by dying. Kevin is confused, but Virgil says that on the night he visited, he did understand that Kevin was so keen to do battle that he got up, walked outside, found some rope and a cinder block, and wandered off into the woods. If the earthquake hadn't sucked away all of the water, Kevin would probably be dead. Virgil believes there is someone looking out for Kevin, or maybe he has a powerful adversary. Kevin needs to understand who Virgil is, so Virgil confesses. He says he did terrible things, and those terrible things resulted in him being shot. He died, and he visited the other place where he battled his adversary, and once he won, he came back to life, reborn. Kevin, at this moment, realises that Virgil must be John's father. What did you do to him? says Kevin. Virgil says that he hurt John and John hurt him back and in the process freed him. Now he wants to help free Kevin. And to free Kevin, he'll have to kill him, but only temporarily. Kevin walks out of Virgil's home, picks up Michael's bike from the back of the truck, throws it to the ground and drives off into the middle of the forest. He calls for Paddy to come out and talk to him. He finally feels like he has the upper hand because Paddy told him about everything that night. When the earthquake hit, the girls departing, but nothing about Virgil. He now knows what he has to do to get rid of Paddy. She strikes Kevin. She wants this. She wants to do battle. She's ready to die. Kevin tells Paddy he doesn't want to die. He actually has responsibilities. He's a father. Maybe Jill would be better off, suggests Paddy. Kevin drives back into the town and tries Nora again, but no luck. His phone rings and it is a ranger saying there is a woman at the town entrance claiming to be his wife. He thinks it must be Nora, but it turns out to be Laurie. Kevin drives down to see her, but she's not allowed into Jarden without a wristband. She knows Nora claimed that They hadn't seen Tommy, but she wants to know if this is true from Kevin, because if it isn't, maybe he can pass on a message. Kevin is shocked that Laurie called Nora because he didn't know anything about it. He also hasn't seen Tommy in over a year. Laurie confesses that Jill and Tommy text all the time, something that Kevin also didn't know. He becomes agitated and Laurie notices the handcuffs still attached to his wrist. She asks if he is okay and he lies. He says he's happy. He's great. Laurie feels like she has made a mistake coming here and walks away. Kevin yells at her while hitting the gate, telling her not to leave. But this is what Laurie does. She leaves. Kevin next drives to the fire station to get some bolt cutters, but when he arrives, he sees that there has been a setup for men to come and have their handprints taken to prove their innocence. Kevin realises this is a bad idea to be here and begins to leave, but John sees him and calls him over. He thinks Nora and Kevin were getting up to something kinky and gets one of his co-workers to go and find the bolt cutters. John is actually kind of in a good mood about this. 
And he also figures while Kevin is there, he can have his handprint taken because it will exonerate another innocent man. Kevin reluctantly does so, and the handprint is immediately faxed to someone who can now compare it with the print found on the teenager's car. They can't find the bolt cutter, so John suggests he goes and sees the locksmith who was a friend of John's. Kevin gets back into the car where Paddy is waiting for him. Well, that's that. You went to get freed, but now you're caught, says Paddy. She confesses the only time she ever felt free was the moment she died in Kevin's arms. Finally, it was all over. That night, Kevin returns home to find Jill sitting on the veranda. She wants to know if Kevin fixed whatever was wrong with Nora. He says he's trying and she wants to know what he did. He says it is complicated, but Jill doubts that. She wonders if Kevin was lying when he said he wanted Jill, Nora and Lily to be a happy family. Kevin says that is all he wants. Jill just wants her dad to get it together and fix everything. She leaves him alone on the veranda. Later that night, Kevin goes to the motel that Laurie is staying at. At first, she's scared to let him in, but he just wants to talk. He confesses to Laurie about seeing Paddy and how he's worried he's losing his mind. They smoke cigarettes together, an act he used to lie about, an act she turned to after the sudden departure. He talks about how Paddy told him not to tell Nora because she would leave, and that turned out to be correct. Laurie asks him, what does Paddy tell you now? And he lies, claiming nothing. Laurie knows he's lying. Laurie points out that Paddy isn't there when she is because Laurie could prove she doesn't exist. She could ask Paddy questions the only the two of them would know the answer to, and that would prove she's a figment of Kevin's mind. Kevin doesn't believe this because Paddy told him about her ex-husband, Neil, cheating with the woman who would defecate on him. Laurie is surprised that Kevin doesn't remember that she actually told him that story. She broke the doctor-patient confidentiality agreement, so that is how Kevin knows the story. Kevin doesn't remember her telling him that story at all. Laurie explains that after moments of trauma, people need belief to help them cope. After the day of the sudden departure, the world was in turmoil, that everyone was full of emotions that were difficult to deal with, and many people turned to magic to help them make sense of the world, or to cults to give them new belief systems. She knows this because this is what she and Tommy have been doing with survivors, making up the story about Holy Wayne so Tommy could hug away their pain. It was a lie that Tommy wasn't comfortable with, but Laurie saw it as a positive because it helped people. But this is a digression, and Laurie returns to her point, that everyone just wants something that will let them turn off from their deeper feelings, and this is what Paddy has become for Kevin, a way to turn away from his deeper problems. Laurie believes Kevin needs proper help, he needs medication, and he probably has to go away for a while. Kevin begs his ex-wife to come with him into Jardin and help him. Since she still has his last name, he can get her in as his wife. They return to the house, but Jill isn't there. Kevin and Laurie have a talk, and he apologises for how, when Laurie wanted a dog, he was a dick about it. Laurie doesn't remember this, but Kevin says he thinks about it all the time. Laurie says he is forgiven. She's looking at Lily's playthings. The last thing on her mind is the dog with her thoughts going to the child they never had the opportunity to raise. The phone rings, and it is Nora. Kevin takes the call upstairs and Nora confesses she can't be around him if he's seeing and talking to a dead woman. Kevin is desperate. He wants her back. He really does love her. He says that he should have told her from the beginning, but he was scared she would leave him. 
He asks why she didn't leave a key, and she says she did. It was next to a note on the chair. Kevin looks over and realises he didn't see it, because that is where Paddy was sitting when he woke up. Kevin says he can get rid of Paddy and make everything okay, and if he did that, would she come back to him? Nora says that she would like that. Jill returns home and sees her mum, but she's not happy about this. She runs upstairs to confront her father, but he's gone. She runs to the balcony and sees him driving away in his truck. Kevin arrives at Virgil's home and knocks on the door. Virgil answers and Michael is inside, crying. Michael leaves Kevin to be alone with his grandfather. Kevin says he's ready to do this. He's ready to go to the other side. Virgil asks, just to be certain, if he's ready. I'm ready, says Kevin. Virgil mix up a vial of poison that will stop his heart. He then pulls out an EpiPen and says that he'll wait no longer than five minutes and then he'll bring Kevin back from the dead. Kevin asks if he's done this before. Virgil says that the man in the city centre on the top of the pillar, who we discover is named Edward, is a living, breathing success story. Kevin galvanises himself and picks up the poison, but before he can drink it, Paddy yells at him to stop. She points out that this is a big step, that he doesn't really know Virgil, and from what he does know, he's a pedophile. Should he be listening to this man? Kevin asks Paddy if she wants him to do it. She says she does. They play games with each other. Kevin confesses that Laurie believes he is psychotic, like his father, that it is possibly hereditary. Kevin talks about seeing his father before he left Mapleton, how his father said he was cured, and the way he cured himself wasn't through the voices disappearing, but instead he listened to the voices and did what they asked him to do. Kevin picks up the poison, says goodbye to Paddy, and with her yelling at him, he swallows it down. And then Kevin dies, a slow, painful death. Virgil watches all of this, picks up the EpiPen and squeezes what's inside onto the floor. He places the EpiPen back on the table, picks up a gun, slips it in his mouth and blows the back of his head off all over the wall. The two dead men are alone in Virgil's home. And then the door opens to reveal Michael. He looks about and he steals himself, overcoming the emotion of his dead grandfather. He picks up Kevin's feet and slowly begins to drag him away. Whew, this is an episode that is haunted by confessions. We are told that confessing is good for the soul, that it leads to answers and salvation, but this isn't always the truth. In fact, a confession can sometimes make you more isolated as those who love you can't deal with your issues and push you away. Confessions can have people judge you because pure honesty isn't a trait we're totally comfortable with. We're actually more comfortable with a lie, and when the lie is found out, we're even more comfortable with the outrage over the lie. A confession can more often than not be the end of a friendship, a partnership, a relationship. I'm not saying all confessions are bad or that they always lead to negative experiences, just that they can have the opposite effect of what you're hoping to achieve. Kevin finally confessing to Nora about Paddy was the right thing to do. Jill and Nora have quite clearly been noticing Kevin slipping further into madness. Jill in particular speaks very matter-of-factly about it with Michael, how her father talks to people who aren't there and sleepwalks at night with no idea of where he's been. She's already seen this behaviour in her grandfather and now it is noticeable in her father. Jill is agitated because she came to this place away from her friends for a new start and it now seems like the madness of Mapleton is following them. 
She has a great relationship with Nora, who doesn't treat her like a surrogate daughter, but as a friend. Remember, their relationship is built on honesty, and she doesn't want her father to ruin this relationship. You also wonder if Jill is on edge, because if this behaviour is hereditary, could this at some point manifest in her as well? When she goes to Michael for solace, he can't provide it because he's more in love with his faith than his girlfriend. She doesn't need another perspective that is laced with his love of God. She needs a friend to look at her and say, wow, that's all a bit shit. In wrapping himself in his faith, he fails to be what she needs. When she lashes out, he answers honestly, which is the right thing to do in theory. When he confesses he doesn't love her because he doesn't know her well enough yet, and that's the reason why they haven't had sex, it is a truth, but it is unwanted truth at this particular moment. And Jill is probably thinking, you know what? Sometimes sex is just sex. Two people being wrapped in each other, lost in a moment, a moment he can never reach because of his faith. You can understand Jill's frustration. Later, she confronts her father, and since he won't tell her the whole truth, she gives him an answer based on the information he provides. Jill, in many ways, has become the wisest of characters, and you know this is true when she calmly explains to her father that not all situations are as complicated as we make them. This is a correct answer, but for someone who is in a spiral like Kevin, he can't find his way to the simple truth. Who hasn't been caught in the middle of an emotional quagmire and only after you've freed yourself from this moment, realised it was only a few steps in either direction to some peace of mind? I know I have. Kevin's spiral is picking up speed. I've loved in the past few episodes that we haven't had to focus that much on Kevin to know that things were getting out of hand. There have been moments here and there that have kept us in the loop, and after his confession to Nora, none of this comes as a surprise. It makes sense that Nora would leave at this moment. Nora's been confronted by Erica into admitting to herself that she's nowhere near as fine as she led herself to believe. She has had it confirmed that her boyfriend is having a mental breakdown. And not only that, but seeing the dead leader of the guilty remnant all the time. Nora has quite clearly been making excuses for Kevin, never questioning when she catches him talking to himself or leaving Lily out on the car. Nora has been lying to herself about the whole family, and now that there is supposedly a dead woman in the house with them, even if it is only in Kevin's mind, God, it would have me running for the hills too. As a side note, I remember my mum used to say to me that, When I was a baby, she saw the movie The Exorcist and she decided that if she came home and my eyes even turned a very light shade of pea soup green, she would have just left the house and never come back and left me there for the rest of my family to deal with. (laughs) She was not going to deal with a possessed child. Nora's turn makes sense. She has to protect Mary and Lily and in turn herself. She leaves Jill behind because Jill will be fine, she's a grown-up, and she's the only person who truly understands what might be happening to her father. Kevin's confession reinforces what Nora has to confess to herself. She really isn't okay. Kevin's slip into madness is hard to watch. If Patty is a ghost, when she tells him to drink a cup of his own cum, that is a confronting image and a gross thought. But if this is just Kevin's mind reflecting back to him about how he feels about himself, it is sad and scary that his subconscious would choose these words. Either way, he's in trouble. 
It is almost a relief when Michael spies him talking to himself in the car. When he climbs in the passenger seat and confesses to Kevin that he knows about Paddy and the sleepwalking, he is at his religious best. He does so without judgment, and he believes he has a solution. The Virgil situation is fascinating. That Kevin somehow found himself at Virgil's home that night, that Kevin tried to kill himself, and Kevin not remembering it is really scary. That Virgil didn't realise he was sleepwalking is also fascinating. There is some solace in the fact that we now know that Kevin wasn't trying to kill himself to escape his life, that he was taking the conversation with Virgil to an extreme in a bid to rid himself of Paddy. Jill wondered if her father was lying about wanting them to be a new family, and when he confesses that he wasn't, he he wants them to be a new family, he wasn't lying, we now know that he is telling the truth. He didn't want to escape this life, he wanted to escape Paddy, he wants to escape his madness, so he can stay in this world happily with the people he loves. Virgil is a fascinating character. He appears just as mad as Kevin, but there is also a level of empathy that we haven't seen exhibited to Kevin coming straight from him. That we discover he once abused his son, John Murphy, is a shameful act. Now we understand why John is so angry. When did he discover this awful moment in his life? Was it suppressed and it came out later, or was it always there, bubbling under the surface? Did it only manifest when he finally had a little boy of his own? Did Virgil try something with Michael? We don't really know. I've really refrained from making too many comments on John throughout the podcast because I knew where we were going. And I just wanted to stay in the moment because initially John is hard to like. He's hard to empathize with. But now we understand a part of John where that terrible anger comes from. We can understand Erica not wanting her son anywhere near this man. We can understand why John shot him in the chest and tried to kill him. Should we ever forgive someone who does such an awful act just because they say they've repented? That is a question only you can answer. But in a world where 2% of the world's population disappeared, that implies that there is at least 2% of the world being supernatural. Is there a possibility that he did travel to the Shadowlands, defeat his adversary, and return to the world a new person? Once again, this is a question only you can answer depending on how you're interpreting the show. We now know that Edward, the man at the top of the pillar, has gone through the process and is cured. But he also lives up a tower in the middle of the city. So who is to say if it is just fucking mad people flocking together? Kevin believes this quickfire solution because his other solutions are more terrifying. His reuniting with Laurie is informative. It is tense to begin with. He can't help but have a crack at her for talking again. He's on the back foot when he realises that she's been in touch with Nora and Jill has been in touch with Tommy. He lashes out in that angry way that is so ugly and confrontational that Laurie just has to walk away. She walked away before because she can't handle this aspect of him. She will walk away again. When Kevin first appears at the motel, she is afraid, but he's come to his senses, even just for a moment, and knows that Laurie will speak truth. She is correct that after experiencing trauma, we turn to the easiest solution to feel better about ourselves as quickly as we can. Laurie's way forward is the correct way, but it is a long journey, and it is one that doesn't necessarily lead to a definitive solution. We've seen it with Kevin Garvey Sr., who confessed earlier in the season to his son that the voices never went away. He just stopped arguing with them and did what they told him to do. That doesn't sound like a sane person to me. 
taking Laurie back to his home is myopic. It doesn't take into account how Jill will feel. Or, like, what's Nora going to think when she comes back? If she comes back. He also can't take into account what Laurie will feel. I'm guessing he still doesn't know that she lost their baby on that day, and for her to walk around his new home and see baby playthings is confronting. To have her daughter come home and immediately reject her on sight is another damning moment. But Kevin turning to Laurie is a step in the right direction, even if it is only for a path to redemption for him. Yet when Nora calls, his desperation returns. He doesn't think straight. He returns to the easiest fix. It is the same decision he made to go to get John's help. Kevin should be steering as far away from John as possible, but he wants that handcuff off his wrist, the one he could have easily removed if Paddy hadn't been sitting in front of the note. Either that is one sly ghost or a subconscious that doesn't want his life to be easy. As soon as he arrives, he knows he's made a mistake. To watch him have to give up his handprint, you know nothing good can come from this. Paddy said that morning that it was going to be a bad day and yet it is even worse than Kevin could have imagined. Not only has he given up his handprint, he's now turning to John's shunned father for help. You know what? None of this is a good idea. In the end, Kevin is down amongst the mad people, talking through a crazy theory of death and rebirth while arguing with a ghost who may or may not exist. Watching Kevin drink the poison is awful, especially that slow, painful death scene. To watch Virgil squeeze the EpiPen dry and blow his brains out suggests that this has all been a ruse, that this is what happens when you bargain with mad people for a little peace of mind. There is hope when Michael returns and drags Kevin away. You understand that this must be a plan, that to help Kevin return, Virgil has to be the guide. No wonder Michael was crying when Kevin arrived. This was the plan all along. That Kevin is willing to die to live again is terrifying, but this is a man who has been haunted for most of his life, by the spectre of his father, by the sudden departure, by his own failings, by a ghost, by his self-doubt. He is beyond sanity. We do know that he loves Nora, that he loves Jill. Paddy suggests she might be better off without him, but this isn't true. Jill would be better off with her father around, especially if he can find his equilibrium. But it is his love of Nora that drives him. It doesn't matter why he loves her, he just does. And like Orpheus who travelled down into the underworld with only his music to keep the shadow creatures at bay, Kevin is prepared to journey there to confront his most powerful adversary with the hope he can win and be reunited with his lost love. Let's finish up with some squid bits. There are some new references to that May 1972 issue of National Geographic that Kevin Garvey Sr. was so obsessed with. There was an article in the magazine entitled Cairo, Troubled Capital of the Arab World. So we had uh, Paddy talking about that and going to get the cum cup. Yuck, 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 yuck. Two words that should never go together. In Virgil's trailer, there is a taxidermy. I think that's the correct word, Galago, an African primate, also known as a bush baby. It looks incredibly similar to a photo on page three of the magazine, which is an advert for enrolling in the National Geographic Society, which highlights a society-funded research project involving the bush baby. 
There's a watercolour of an island just behind where Virgil shoots himself that has Japanese characters on it, which appear on page 671 of the magazine. They spell the name of Futagami Jim, which means Twin Gods Island, an isolated island that is also the subject of the article living in a Japanese village. Virgil also has a trinket that resembles the Egyptian depiction of a sphinx and the Great Sphinx of Geyser statue is featured in a photograph on page 651 of the magazine as part of the Cairo article. Paddy gets where the wishing cup was discovered incorrect. It was found in the tomb of Tutankhamun and not Amenhotep, as she claims. Uh, Turns out, Ghost Paddy doesn't know everything, mate. (laughs) Virgil complains about stereotypes arising from the 1973 movie The Exorcist. Paddy also refers to the term the magical Negro trope that has been used in media throughout the years. It gives supporting characters who are black, supernatural or quasi-supernatural powers and is seen as incredibly racist now. It isn't equivalent here, though, because we have the Murphy family who are comparatively normal. Uh, you know, they're not magical. They're just normal characters. And if the character of Virgil was the only black character in the series and he turned out that he had potentially mystical powers, then that would actually make it problematic. Virgil offers to be Kevin's guide in the land of the dead. This alludes to Dante's 14th century Italian narrative poem, The Divine Comedy, in which the ancient Roman poet Virgil acts as a guide to Dante's pilgrim through the underworld and purgatory. Since the historical Virgil died in 19 BC, which is of course before the birth of Christ, he cannot accompany Dante into paradise. The use of the word adversary is often used in Christianity to indicate the devil. Notably for the leftovers, the adversary is the name used to represent the entity who bets God into tormenting Job. Paddy telling Kevin to sarcastically drink his own sperm to get rid of her is then flipped when he drinks poison to rid himself of her. The act of drinking is very important and will be incredibly important next episode. What does that mean? You have to watch the next episode. In the book, Nora leaves Kevin much earlier while they're still in Mapleton because she feels bitter when Kevin confesses he heard from Tommy. She gets kind of bitter at his ability to be in touch with family. They reunite just like the ending of the first season when she finds the baby on his veranda. Virgil says it won't be long now, which is a guilty remnant mantra from the book, which has previously appeared in the episodes Gladys and Cairo. What a crazy good episode, right? I'm loving this. I can't wait to hear your thoughts as we barrel towards the end of season two. Remember to keep across the podcast. You can either join our open or private Facebook page, Big Squid with Justin Hamilton. If you want to share your thoughts, join the private page because we can talk there free of spoilers. I'd hate for someone who's just discovering Big Squid for the first time to find spoilers on the open page. I also have a website with blogs and short stories over at justinhamilton.com.au. So if you'd like some extra content, if you feel like you're not getting enough of me, you can go over there i'm also on an episode of faux fop this week like just don't get me wrong you don't have to be listening to me all the time but if if you want some more there's more out there uh don't forget this week i also released a podcast with rachel melantara and we talked about the new bo burnham special and god what she's going through in lockdown in canada the poor thing and angela fapierre joined me to talk about space junk making friends with spiders and more If you're enjoying this podcast and my friends, please leave us a top review on Apple Podcasts and maybe even a recommendation to like-minded people who you think might enjoy the work that we produce here at Big Squid. 
Thank you so much for your company. I really appreciate it. Let's finish this episode with a quote from the poet Virgil. The gates of hell are open night and day, smooth the descent and easy is the way. But to return and view the cheerful skies, in this the task and mighty labour lies. Until then. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus... Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.